Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up. Boston Code Viking Steph Kelsey started as engineer number three at Notarize. This episode was recorded while he was their VP of Engineering, leading a team of 40. He's now the VPE of AppQs. Scaling an engineering org is challenging enough on its own, but what about doing that in a totally new market segment? That's what Notarize did as it moved the notary public process to a video-driven SaaS interaction. Nobody even knew that was a thing until they did it. And Steph and I talk about tooling, automation, ownership, and more with a special dive into building a culture where learning and problem ownership is managerial rite of passage. Hey, Steph, man, thanks for joining us. Hey, Ledge, it's great to be here. Awesome, man. So just give the audience, if you would, uh, you know, a two, three-minute intro of, of you and, and your work and, and what you're up to. Sure. So I'm the uh, VP of Engineering at Notarize. So this is a startup in Boston um, that features remote online notarization. So RON, RON. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting segment to be in um, because it is transformational. So you can kind of think about, um, you know, when, when DocuSign, you know, rocked the world with um, doing e-signatures, this is kind of a follow-up to that. Uh, so this is now instead of going to you know, a, a, a notary with a piece of paper and they actually stamp it with a physical stamp. Um, you can, you know, do a call just like we're doing right now um, and a notorial act can take place. Uh, so there's, there's all kinds of challenges that come with, you know, not just going from like a very small company, like, I, you know, I was third engineer to join and maybe 11th in the company and now the company's about 100 and the engineering squad, you know, is about 40. So there's the challenges of, just you know, scaling scaling a, a team and scaling a business, um, but then also this whole transformational aspect of we're still convincing people that remote online notarization is a thing and, and that it's legal, you know, and um, so it's been it's been really wild. That's awesome, yeah. And you're you're kind of past the proverbial you know two pizza engineering team, so <laughs> you know that changes everything when you have to start thinking about like I can no longer throw a task over the cube wall. Or, you know, we're not all even in the same room, um, you know, forget about, you know, remote and distributed, like you end up being like that in, in one building even because you get to a point where now we're segmenting work across multiple teams. I assume you're an agile environment. How are you dealing with, um, you know, the, the growing pains of, of doing that? What, what's it been like? It's, um, it's amazing. It's actually, it's so much harder than you think. Um, so when you're just one team around a table, um, and you just naturally share the same context just because you can, everyone's in the same conversation because there's really only one conversation happening. It all just feels so natural and you just don't think about, about collaboration being an issue. You're like, well, this, we just do this and it's fine. It's just, it's just part of our day to day. Once you start to split, once you're like, okay, now we're multiple teams that are worried about different things. And then once we actually, we move from a smaller office into the space we're in now. Um, and that to me was, that was the big moment because now we're spread out in a much larger room where you can't really just like naturally overhear what someone else is doing. It's just not part of your day to day. 
you know, if you want to do the math on that, you can be like, oh, that's, you know, that's twice as hard. That's three times as hard. It's not. It's exponentially harder um, once, that, once that happens. Um, there's a couple of different, different reasons for that. There were some choices we made when we first split the teams up that now as we've scaled, I'm kind of like, oh, we probably should, should shuffle the teams. Um, so what we did was we, it was a very logical choice. You know, there's a million ways to like slice up your, your organization into different teams to have a different focus. Um, and they all have their pros and cons. So we went with, let's be as close to customers as we can. So let's slice by uh, market vertical. And then what happens is that there's a bunch of unintentional side effects from that. And one of them is your code ends up start, it starts to partition the same way. Um, so let's say you introduce like a new product feature that really should be like the platform. It really should be like a platform product. But because of roadmaps, you're like, well, what we're going to do is whatever team needs that first, they'll, be, they'll build it and then we'll all use it. But they'll build it just for their segment and it doesn't end up being reusable. So like what you build for, say, small medium business, it's because you're not really thinking about everything you can think about, it's not going to work for, you know, let's say, a, you know, a, a title agent somewhere else in the United States or like a, you know, a giant lender, you know, they're, they're, it's not going to be the same. So then you, you run into these inefficiencies where you're like, oh, that choice we made a while ago now has kind of siloed us into this. So there's just interesting things around team design that you can kind of talk about all day, you know, about like, okay, like how could we have done this differently? And, and, and then where the different uh, friction points are around collaboration. Yeah. And it's all about speed to market. So, yeah. I mean, you, of course, I imagine you're, business development folks, you know, I work in sales myself that you're just like, go, go, go. You know, we want this thing and we want it for this customer now. And we don't want to wait for you guys to, you know, figure out how the business case applies to, you know, customers that aren't trying to send us money today. So you can well, that's hard about a transformation industry is so much of it is exploratory. Like, you know, we're still trying to find, I mean, we're always trying to find like new channels and new customers, and new verticals. And and you just don't know what's going to stick. So even, you know, your initial outreach that people do in sales, you think like, oh, this is good. And then you run into a spot where you're like, oh, but this is for auto insurance. And a lot of state DMVs, the, the employees there don't know that remote online organization is legal. So someone brings them the notarized form and they don't accept it. And then what you thought was like going to be this great vertical and this, this first customer that's proving the case they end up being unhappy because it's really their customers that are getting the notarizations done. And they're saying, Hey, our customers are unhappy because the acceptance of the notarization is terrible. And so it just kind of rains on your, on your parade because you've done all this research and set up and all these initial calls made these relationships. And then, and the, and unfortunately too, it's the thing that you have the hardest time tracking. Like how do I track acceptance? You know, that there's no, I, I can't like patch that in a new relic, you know? And what's the, I don't know, you know, we've, we've talked about CICD and, and you know, the pipeline of, of testing and regression and just all those things like, okay, so you went from three engineers to 40, you know, and uh, how have you dealt with like from a technological and tooling perspective, you know, doing that the right way. And, you know, maybe what choices there do you kind of wish you could have done differently? Some of the CI tools were, were kind of still using the same stuff we did at the beginning. So we were on, you know, there's plenty of SaaS products that do this. We were on CircleCI for our main stuff. And then we just, they have different plans now. I wish they had um, these plans when we made this decision. But um, when we were, uh, had to make the choice about how do we do, we want to create an end-to-end, -end, you know, automation suite. We just, we want to be able to ship with a lot more confidence and speed. So we're going to make this suite. And because of how CircleCI, this is, you know, this isn't true now, but it was then. 
how they have their plan structured is you just pay, you paid for like queues. So it's like, how many things can you do in parallel? You pay that way. And if you're setting up an end-to-end -end suite, some of these things can take a long time, especially for us, the core of our product is a, uh, you know, it's a call and it takes a while. So like our, some of our longest flows that need to be tested for a smoke test, I think it takes like 11 or 12 minutes. Um, and so you can't, you, it's hard to have that be like uh, a blocker and then, if a bunch of people running those tests, then all of a sudden no one can even run their unit tests or, or you know, anything. So it completely stopped development. So what we did was we moved the end-to-end -end testing stuff to our own, our own Jenkins. Um, so we had, you know, we, we set up uh, a load balancer and you can spin up, you know, Jenkins master and, uh, and nodes off of that. And that was really for the end-to-end -end testing. So the, still, I think the the unit testing and other stuff, it still runs on circle. Like that's not totally gone. Um, but we did, we had to move that. And we're still iterating on that. Um, you know, it's interesting what problems you run into later. Like one of the problems we're having now, it's just about diagnosing. So it's like triaging. So let's say you're running all these tests and it, it crashes. Right now, some engineer is stopping what they're doing and then drilling in and being like, hey, what, what, where did this break? Let's actually diagnose it. And you know, you look at kind of what some bigger companies have in tooling and they'll invest in like, oh, we're gonna have a robot diagnose this. They'll, have some kind of algorithm where, you know, you roll it back one commit at a time and run the test again. And then, you know, when, once it passes, then you're like, hey, it was the commit after this is broken. It's your fault. <laughs> Go fix it. <laughs> so there's kind of stuff like right now we still have a lot of manual work to keep those things going. And it's like, okay, do we keep going with this manual work or do we, is it justified that we invest even more into this tooling, which is more than we thought the initial investment would be. So. And when did you make, uh, did you start right out of the gate in, I'm guessing you're in you know, microservices, pattern you know how, how did you go from the initial work um to that and keep you know because we're splitting those services out and did, did, oh, we are did, not in a microservices pattern oh, we so are you're monolith. not monolith. monolith yeah we still so do. how do you how do you do the uh release scheduling then you know where you're you're still sort of having to deal with a, a major release does it does it slow down so we are weekly and then with the help of that of doing all that automation so we it was every two weeks for a while um I think it was, it was weekly and then the team grew and it became every two weeks because we couldn't keep up with it because it was just a ton of manual QA. And then we, you know, we made some culture changes around testing and we, and tooled up and then we got it back to a week and we want to get, we want to be faster. We were pushing to be twice a week and then, you know, we ran into some issues just kind of maintaining the tooling. So, and then there's different ways to, um, you know, to release software every day. So the, the most ambitious way is to be like, okay, master is going to go out every day. Uh, and then there's other ways where you can be like, hey, master goes out once a week, but what should we going to do a release candidate daily so that you can actually have a, you know, have a branch and then eventually master will wipe it all out. So there's different ways to do it. We haven't really like fully settled on that. We're still in that spot where we know we need to strengthen up the tools. So it kind of doesn't, doesn't matter about the, the next step quite as much. But. And how do you do the support chain where, you know, uh, like I said, a, a given thing breaks and teams probably are, are largely allocated to, you know, new feature development. How do you keep your scrum moving um, in the right fashion? You know, if there's a, a production issue that pulls three engineers off, you can't get your stuff done for that sprint. Do you find that it slows down velocity or, or throughput? So most teams are still not, are not doing sprints. And that's actually why is because it's really hard to be like, oh, we're, we're doing this when you know that there's gonna be production support stuff that's gonna happen. So they're doing Kanban instead. You know, you basically just leave a gap. You're like, oh, it's gonna be. We put in a more robust like incident response system. Um, and so now we have someone on call and, and they can kind of like 
shield the like, initial triaging of like if someone reports that they think the platform is down. And then that also helped harden everything up. Um, but, you know, platform does not, does not go down. Um, a lot of times we have miscommunications, like because we have a live human on every transaction, like there's actually a, a human notary that is on the other end of the line. Um, sometimes they can, you know, misinterpret stuff or, or something will happen. They're like, oh, I think this is actually really broken. And we're like, no, that's just your one user. It's not, not the whole platform, which that's going to happen with any video conferencing app, right? Like think about anytime you can use Hangouts or, or Zoom or whatever. Like sometimes those things just are wonky, especially if you try and do it from like a coffee shop. Um, you're just going to have a rough time on the internet and you, know, you can't always assume that that's like a hard platform failure. So creating structure around, around that helps. That kind of gave some, some protection. Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing battle. It does. It does affect velocity. So you need to track that over time. You're like, how much trouble did we have per release? Like, did we end up releasing late this week because there was a bunch of bugs that were blocking the release? And then post-release, you know, monitoring, like, what new bugs and what new support tickets arose after the release. Um, and you just have to have your finger on those two pulses all the time because it's a measure of – it affects your velocity. It also just is a measure of, like, how well the, the teams are functioning. And there's some luck that's in there, so you, you can't overreact week per week. You know, you got to – you got to look at the smooth curves. So do you think that like just the personality and culture of the, the engineering, you know, just sort of being like flexible and, and agile uh, as a bunch of people, you know, things break and that seems to be part of your, your culture that, you, you know, you're accepting and, and putting in some, some flex into the system. And I, I imagine that has to go all the way up. You know, that doesn't, that has to come from a, a core leadership type of, of disposition if you have a, a business unit that's you know sort of demanding results that the engineering you know sort of management paradigm can't keep up with that that would be problematic do you have a product based and engineering based type of, of leadership that that allows for that flex yeah i mean you know pat can sell that he's a ceo he, he he formerly was a product manager at microsoft so he's very product focused he thinks in feature roadmaps like so that's how people like ideate stuff. So when we talk about company strategy, you're like, it just sounds like you're just listing a bunch of features. <laughs> and that's just how he thinks. And then you have to extrapolate it back to like, okay, like let's, let's talk about the problem this is solving and what it means for this customer and then, you know, line it up that way. Um, so it is, it's very focused. And then the way I communicate it from, you know, an engineering leadership standpoint is we're trying to go as fast as possible to ship all these features. Cause we're in that, that spot where I don't have, you know, you're still in that, that initial scale up where, you know, you're not considered bulletproof by investors. So there's going to just be more requests, more feature requests and more asks than there are engineers. So we're just like really making new stuff is high priority. And, and there's understanding like sometimes things are going to slip up a little bit. Um, so what we do is by making those systems, you know, like the incident response system, you can put an SLA on that. You can be like, okay, look, we're aware that things could go feel wrong. It's, you know, it's real life. So we're going to say that we will acknowledge every, every time the patron goes off, we'll acknowledge it within 15 minutes. And we're going to push for a resolution, you know, within a certain amount of time. And we kind of start big and then you shrink it. So you have to have an eventual goal of like, let's do a five minute to acknowledge and a 30 minutes of resolution. Like, so you just have goals like that. And then you just over communicate everything. And then I think it's fine because then you're just, you're setting an expectation of like, look, this is, this is what can happen, but here's how we're going to deal with it is this method of dealing with it acceptable? And then if not, why? Like, what, you know, where, where do we need to be less flexible? And it's tough because, you know, we have some, you know, very, very large um, enterprise lenders and you're doing a pilot with them and then their transactions are precious. So then, you know, instead of like in a high volume business where things can kind of get missed and you just deal with it, this is like, no, like this is, this is a loan for someone either refinancing or purchasing a house. 
um, this needs to be perfect. And then from the perspective of this, you know, company with billions of dollars of revenue, like they're looking at like, hey, we're trying this new technology, this has to work. So it's very, very different. You know, once one of those is going on and it's a pilot for like some account we just landed, we're all watching it go through. You know? <laughs> you're pulling up mixed panel and you're watching the events, you know, <laughs> so. And you described yourself early when we spoke as a, you know, reluctant manager of, of engineering. It's like, I'm talking to you and you have really done some serious thinking about this and you work in and around like the management of it. And, you, you know, you really, it's very clear you, you know about this stuff and you've been thinking about this stuff. What was that evolution like from being, you know, just straight software engineer to, you know, you're, you're leading a team of, of 40 engineers. You probably don't get in the code as much as maybe you'd like even. Uh, what was the learning pattern? You know, cause I think there's a lot of engineers maybe that aspire to that, but just simply have no idea or context on how to make the leap. So in one way I was really fortunate in that I did have previous management experience of just like people management. So I'd had to do that. I had to do the mentoring and I'd had to like, you know, figure out how to hire people effectively and ramp them up. And I'd also had the unfortunate, you know, duty of having to fire people. So I'd had, I had that foundation. So getting back into that was, it was still hard. Um, but I kind of got to ease into it where I was initially, when I became the manager, I was really just doing that. I was very focused on team building and I was still learning a lot. It was about like, okay, how do we make Notarize be a great place to land? So this is, let's develop uh, career tracks and let's make salary bands and let's get all this stuff in place so that we can, you know, help attract talent because we're competing with, you know, it's Boston market. There's huge companies here competing with. Um, and so because I got to worry about just that problem for a while, while, you know, the, the CTO at the time, Michael Lee, who's an awesome collaborator, um, he was really kind of on top of, of the other stuff. So I got, he just was like, here, just do this and figure it out. It's really hard, but go figure it out. So I was given the space to just like make mistakes and try stuff. And then as you know, we got better, we scaled the team and then my responsibilities changed. Now I was, I was hiring and training new managers. So I then became a manager of managers and I had to, you know, I had to learn, learn what that was like. It's a little bit different. And then, with that, it was like, uh, you know, my stack before was native mobile. And then I had to learn things like, you know, there's no incident response for, for native mobile. Like your phone just goes down, there's nothing you can do. So I had to, I had to go to some seminars and, and learn some stuff. And so one thing I try to do is, is with the, the managers now is we look for problems that are ownerless, that, you know, are a big enough fire to deal with. And I'll give them just that problem. So it'll be like, okay, uh, what's an example? Uh, our exception handling, crash handling. Um, it was crazy noisy. It was like, you know, there was exceptions coming in and it was really hard to diagnose. It wasn't a useful tool for us. So one of the managers, it was like, Hey, make a project out of this. Like go, go figure out what other companies are doing, exception handling, how they dealt with it. If they have a really noisy system and what's a good goal, what should our, what should our goal be of how we use this tool? Cause it can't be like zero exceptions. Like that's not possible. So, so how does that work? And then that person would go off and research that and have the opportunity to, to like become more of an expert on it and then come back to the team and be like, here's some things I want to try and here's why. Here's what other companies have done. Here's a playbook for this. I want to try it. And they would own it for a while, like own that problem for a while until it's in good enough shape where we can either make that be part of the process or have a rotation where engineers are on and off of it. And then you go to the next fire. Like, okay, here's this other thing. Owner this problem. Go. You know, so a recent one this week with one of the uh, new managers, uh, Ben Chen, um, who's awesome, he's a super smart dude. It was, uh, we used feature gating. So we have a you know, feature flag product and I was looking at it and reading a little bit about it. And I'm like, you know, I don't think we're doing anything close to best practices on this. Why don't you go ahead and dive in? Here's research I've already done. I've, I've started it, but I'm no expert. You know, like, why don't you own this for a while? And now he has like a cross team project that he can own and iterate on and 
and bring knowledge to the team. So I think a lot of it is that, like you try and, you know, you're definitely, you're hiring smart people and then it's giving them the space and the permission to go learn stuff and also to make mistakes. It's fine. As long as we're like moving forward, it's all good. So I was given that space and I think that's a, that's a great gift. And I try and do the same thing for, for everyone else. Fire focus. I totally dig that. That's a really good <laughs> yeah. It makes a big difference. Like ownerless problems don't get solved. Um, but yeah. And it's also, it's nice too. Once there's more of you, like initially it was just me and one manager and then you started to grow the team. So for a little bit, it would be like, well, what do you think? You know, and now there's enough where there'll be healthy debate about like, no, no, we shouldn't do that now. That's not important now. It should be this. And like, oh, well, why? So that kind of gets fun. Yeah. And that's all about, you know, so what's your method for priority setting? Because you're going to have those debates and the debates need to end and action needs to happen. How do you, how do you handle that? I mean, engineers will sit around and debate forever about, yes. you know, the right way to do a thing. And, and ultimately there's, there's a few right ways. How do you choose and resolve, you know, after the healthy debate? So is this in the context of like this manager's meeting or in the context of like the platform team needs to know what to work on next? Well, it could be either one, but my guess is the managers talk on a more abstracted level about, yeah. you, know, you know, like which fire is worth fighting isn't all that different than, you know, which feature to build in which order. Uh, but there's probably less business mandate on the, the well, former the, than on the, the latter. Different the size of the group, you know, so if you have just like four people that are having a debate about something, um, it's different than when it's, yeah, than when it's like more of a company focus. So there's, a, there's another point that came with scaling where we're like, okay, we need to have a bit more of a system about um, being transparent about how we decide what to work on. So the, the platform team, the core team, um, which is uh, tech led by Arturo, who's was second engineer of the company. So he was in before me, um, is a young guy, like one of those MIT guys. He's great, super smart dude. Um, I kind of tasked him with like, you know, here's some research I've done about, about uh, pricing solutions and pricing problems. What do you think? Like, you know, something we should try. And he grabbed it and ran with it, you know, so he, he took kind of initial template and then made this scoring system. And that way, when people from frontline submit their ideas, we could actually be like, hey, look, your idea, it got in front of the platform team, they've scored it, here's what the score is, and here's the stuff that's being done ahead of you, and look at those scores, and then at least they'll know. Like, there's a lot that can be said for like, hey, someone looked at it, it's like already a great feeling, and then the second feeling is like, oh, and I, I get why they didn't think my project had a bigger impact, and, and we can tell them like, here's a way, that, here's how you can show bigger impact, here's how you can convince us, and just go get numbers. Like, did you talk to, you, you talked to one client who wants this, but you know, why come back to me when five clients want this and, and what's their market share and what's, you know, what's the value of that customer. And then, then that'll, Oh, that impact now is much bigger. You know, now there's some money to be made here. We got to do this feature. Um, so then they're bought into like helping us kind of gather that data. So making that transparent and getting people on board, it's been awesome. And then, so the, the head of product saw what we were doing from an engineering perspective and he created, this is Alex Jenkins, the VP of product. He created a Trello board for the frontline team where they can just start throwing ideas. And he gave them, we gave them an impact field for each cell on that Trello board. So they could score things themselves and then, you know, we could always tweak it later. Uh, but so they would have a running dialogue on each Trello card with the score. And, and then from us, engineers, now we can just go through and organize, sort that by, uh, by impact and then just start pulling stuff off the top. So. How'd you design the scoring mechanism for, for the impact score? Uh, I read, um, I think it's called Hacking Growth. It's a great book, Red Cover. Um, and they talked about using ice instead of rice. So that was impact, confidence, and ease, ice. 
Um, so I really liked that. I thought that was, that was interesting. So I, I brought that to Arturo and then he made the numbers. So he did a, a system that was one through 10 and then each, you know, for each number, you know, he said like, okay, for this range, this is when you would use this number, you know, for, for impact effort and, and confidence. Huh? So he really did the initial, like this is made sense of the numbers and ran with it. That's awesome. So I ask everybody, you know, who um, we're obviously in the business of, you know, sourcing, hiring, and, and deploying, you know, just the absolute most elite engineers. And I think that everybody who is in the hiring of engineers has, you know, sort of a go-to set of heuristics that, that you feel are maybe the most important things. Like, how do I know when a, an absolutely awesome A-plus senior engineer is in front of me that I want to hire? You know, what, what are the things that you measure? What are the heuristics that you use for that? Um, yeah, it's funny. It, you've kind of flipped it. Because a lot of times in a hiring funnel, you're thinking about the other way. You're thinking about like reasons to disqualify. So I like the way you phrase it better, which is like, what do you want? Instead of like, what are the red flags where you just say this is over? <laughs> so what do, what do we look for? I think, I mean, if we look at what our hiring loops are, um, each one of those sessions kind of has a, a target trait. So, you know, initial screen is done um, by the recruiter. It used to be done a lot more by me, but now I don't have as much time. And Kevin Fanning is amazing. He does all of them. So he just does an initial, like, culture check um, and a kind of a sanity check. And that's super important. And then the next screen is a technical screen, and it's, it's very algorithm-based. Um, and we try and do it more collaboratively. Like, you don't do it by yourself. Like, you, you do it live, and someone's watching you, and you're kind of working together. But it's still, at the end of the day, it's an algorithm problem. So we just want to look at, like, how do you think about code, and can you solve problems efficiently? And, you know, kind of classic. Like, that's what a lot of companies do. It's similar to, you know, Amazon or Twitter or whoever. And then the next challenge is when they come on site, and we do a software design challenge. So now it's Let's talk about how you architect things. How do you name things? What, how, how do you decide like what should be in each class? How do you connect stuff? How do you handle responsibility? Uh, and then the last challenge is pair programming. So you're given a fake project and you just work together on it. And that one is just kind of all encompassing. So that is how well do you communicate? How, what do you value as good code versus bad code? You know, the whole nine yards. Um, there's a couple, there's one thing I, I kind of want to add to our loop and that is, um, I just haven't done it yet. My friend uh, Derek, uh, Derek Pryor, who was at ThoughtBot and now moved on to be a manager at GitHub, he, he implemented this at ThoughtBot. I need to go pick his brain about exactly how he did it. But it was a PR challenge. So you, you send someone a pull request, which is, you know, whatever. That's the trick is figuring out what's good code to put in there. And then they have to comment on it. I really like that challenge. I, I want to do that. I want to do that here. But it's just a matter of like, I think you need to iterate on that for a while. So it's probably something I need to give to one of the edge managers and be like, hey, figure this out. First off, figure out how we could do it, how a robot can make a pull request and just email it to someone. And then the second is, um, is we need to iterate on like what's good code to show people so that we could get some interesting results. But I really like that challenge because so much of the job is reading other people's code. So Yeah, I love that. That's a great heuristic. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. That code review process is, is going to... It's so much of your day. Yeah. Well, it's going to elucidate so much of your uh, thinking and, and collaboration and, and even the way you give that feedback and, yeah. and write those comments. And, you know, it's, it's going to show a lot of, of the, uh, the edge of communication abilities because yeah. when I know I'm being interviewed, you know, I may communicate differently than when I'm giving, you know, uh, written feedback, you know, potentially under a little bit of, of time pressure. And uh, it really sets the tone that that's what your culture is doing. I love that. 
Yeah, I try, I try and be pragmatic. We used to just do a lot more algorithm stuff, and uh, we iterated on that over time. And you know, as a team, pulled pulled back from that. And we're like, let's let's take some stuff that we know works well at other companies. And um, the the pair programming interview, like I definitely pulled that right out of working at ThoughtBot. They most of their interview, at least when I was there and when I was going through it, um, was was like a day of pair programming with two different people. And I was like, man, that is solid. Like there is nowhere to hide, you know, like you're, you can either do this work and collaborate with people or you just can't, you know? So I, I really, I thought that was awesome. I, I kind of put a lot of weight onto that interview a little bit more than, than the other ones, but you can see like what the values are, like how well do you design software? What do you think good code is? You know, like each, each, each one of these sessions kind of has a different element that we could pick. And so from there, you could pull all that together and be like, this is the, the makings of a, of a good senior engineer. So if you can call, you know, four years ago, Steph, and, and ask a question or uh, give a warning, you know, what do you say? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I would say it's, it's really important in all these other, op- there's so many opportunities out there. It's really important to just do your due diligence. Um, so let, let's just let's make sure that you really evaluate an opportunity from like back to front, like, you know, like turn over every stone and look, cause you, you just don't, you don't know what you're going to be responsible for at the end of it. So there's stuff that you think is trivial that you're like, Oh, I'm not, that's not going to be something I have to deal with. You know, I, I'm in eng, I'm not going to have to worry about, you know, cross team stuff or you know, who cares what that department is doing. It doesn't affect me. Because there's a point, you know, where if you are in a spot and, and get put into leadership in a company where now all of that is your problem of like how all the teams collaborate together and how all of them work together. Um, and so it's important to uh, really evaluate like what all your, not just your immediate coworkers would be, but your potential peers will be um, because it makes a big difference. Awesome. Steph, good to have you, man. Uh, it's great to into your insights and uh, I know the audience is going to love it. Well, thanks so much. Pleasure was mine. I can just talk about tech all day for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you came to the right place. Right on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.